You know what that sound means. Welcome to the most interesting part of your day. An exciting episode of the Metaphysical Mysteries with your intrepid hosts, Dr. Terry Trubla and Tom Greenhall. Always finding the seekers in this world and reporting it directly to you, the free and the brave. We encourage all of our fans to check out our website at www.themetaphysicalmysteries.com where we have more content and reference items, links to many of our amazing and cutting-edge guests. We are excited to have you with us again. And as you know, this is the must-do podcast for anybody who is anybody in the metaphysical field. We cover everything from ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, amazing healing sciences, and leading technologies that are simply the coolest. We'll bring in researchers, doctors, and authors, and give you content that you cannot get anywhere else. Check out our latest merchandise and proudly wear and use the Metaphysical Mysteries clothing and accessories. Now, on with our next episode. Good morning, folks. This is Terry and Tom back with another fascinating guest with the Metaphysical Mysteries. Today we have with us an MJ-12. For those of you who know what UFO MJ-12, Majestic 12 stands for, expert, I would consider him an expert, is Tom Whitmore. And Tom is uh, out of the San Antonio area. Uh, Tom is a board member, former board member, still an investigator with MUFON and uh, mutual UFO network type thing. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, also, he went to school at Portland State University and majored in business and finance, became a financial analyst, uh, has a blog. He does research papers on all these things that people think were secret, top secret um, back in the day. And this stuff started all the way back, you know, the Harry Truman times. And so, um, Tom, hey, welcome. Thank you, Terry. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here today. Fantastic. Well, is there anything else in your background you'd like to share with the folks? I've been uh, interested in UFOs since I was about age 12. I was at a friend's house and I, I saw uh, my friend's dad had a couple of books on the bookshelf by Donald Kehoe. And I started reading those. I read those and you know, follow the UFOs were in the news a lot back then. That was back when we actually had newspapers and we had three TV networks. And occasionally you'd, you'd see something on the TV about UFOs, but the, the UFO stories were quite pretty frequent in the newspapers. And uh, then in the 70s, things got quiet. I started wondering what was happening, but I was into other things. Um, I've always read a lot of history especially European history. And I became interested in, in uh, the Soviet Union, which led to, to an interest in espionage and intelligence. So I really started picking up on some tradecraft, what, what in uh, espionage they call tradecraft uh, mm -hmm. principles. So in the 1980s, even though I wasn't involved in the UFO field at that time, in, in the late 80s, I saw a program called UFO cover-up live. And in that program, they were making claims about how there was a top secret government program. Uh, they knew about, uh, they knew about extraterrestrials. They even had an extraterrestrial as a guest of the United States government. And then in the, in the late eighties, when the MJ 12 documents came out, uh, when I, my first impression was, they might have something to do with espionage, with intelligence work. So that, that's where my interest in history uh, and UFOs converged. And I've, I've been, uh, I've been uh, interested generally in UFOs all this time, but my particular area of interest is MJ-12 and the history of the MJ-12 affair. Got it. Yeah, and, and espionage is a good way to get into it. I, I just had lunch with... Uh, Dr. Edwin Mays, uh, who was the supervisor of the Stargate program, what they were doing, the remote viewing between America and Russia and other countries as well. And to speaking of espionage, it just brought that to mind. And I think a lot of this kind of intertwines, uh, but the MJ-12 
program, I talked a little bit about it coming into effect and I'll let you give the history of it, um, why it was created and, you know, some of the players with uh, MJ-12 and, and so forth. So people get a little background when we talk about that. Okay, sure. Yeah. So I started in President Truman's administration, correct? Oh, okay. You, don't, yeah. you want me to go through the, yeah, the yeah, whole, uh, whole topic there? Yeah, so everybody yeah. understands where MJ-12 kind of came from. Okay. Well, what happened was uh, in the late 70s, a UFO researcher by the name of William Moore uh, and uh, a well-known UFO researcher by the name of Stanton Friedman uh, came across the so-called Roswell incident. And they interviewed a number of witnesses. Well, uh, Bill Moore came out with a book, a little book called The Roswell Incident uh, with Charles Berlitz. And that may have kicked off a series of countermeasures from the Air Force and from uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, maybe even the CIA, because if the Roswell incident really happened, if it was really a recovery of, of, a, of a craft, and if there were bodies and all that, then uh, some people were getting too close to the truth, and it was starting to get... Uh, uh, to get legs in the media. So Bill Moore was really, he was just intensely developing contacts. Uh, he had all kinds of contacts in the UFO field, and he was developing contacts in the military and intelligence agencies. And uh, parallel to that, there were some activities going on on Kirtland Air Force Base with Richard Doty, and Richard Doty was working with AFOSI on Kirtland Air Force Base. And Richard Doty uh, was associated with two documents that mention MJ-12. Uh, a very well-known UFO researcher by the name of Linda Howe uh, had an appointment with Linda Doty on, I'm sorry, Richard Doty on Kirtland Air Force Base. And she was shown a document that I, I refer to it as the Carter briefing document. And it made a number of claims, but within that document, um, MJ-12 was mentioned. Also, as part of the Paul Benowitz affair, uh, Bill Moore was requested, probably by Richard Doty, to pass on an, a, a, uh, an altered telex, which, which I now call the Aquarius telex, he was asked to pass that on to Paul Benowitz. And in that telex, it also mentioned MJ-12. Now, these are in the early 1980s. Then uh, not long after that, during that period, uh, Bill Moore's research associate by the name of Jamie Chanderay received uh, a mailing. I think it was put in his door. But uh, the mailing was, it was postmarked Albuquerque, New Mexico. And within that was a roll of film, 35 mill millimeter film, which they developed. And lo and behold, we had the first set of what are now known as the MJ-12 documents. Gotcha. And in that set, they consisted of what we now refer to as the Eisenhower briefing document and the Truman Forrestal memo. And what the Eisenhower briefing document described was that there was a recovery of a UFO in Roswell, New Mexico, in 19, or near Roswell, New Mexico, in 1947, and that bodies were recovered. And obviously, this was a big deal. Uh, and so a very uh, a secret committee of very high-level scientists and military people and government people was formed to study and probably manage uh, the information concerning uh, this, whole, this whole situation. So that, that's become known as the Eisenhower briefing document. Also, there was another document with that known as the, the Truman Forrestal memo in which President Truman allegedly authorized Secretary of Defense Forrestal to create the MJ-12 committee and, and to go from there. Right, now so my understanding my understanding is that um, the Eisenhower, he when he became president-elect, is when that was created. Uh, he was briefed at that point 
Uh, obviously, he'd been a four-star general, and but just because you are, I think people need to understand what compartmentalization is all about as it relates to keeping secrets. And uh, so, you know, eyes only or need to know concepts. Uh, so nobody knows the total truth, even though they may be working on a package for part of it. Um, but I think then they use quite a bit of compartmentalization in this particular case as far as the existence of the MJ-12 group? Well, uh, if the MJ-12 group existed, yes, obviously, there would have been extreme secrecy and extreme compartmentalization. Now, th there, there are two sides to this. Uh, one, one is the, the documents themselves. And uh, many of these documents have not held up under scrutiny. In other words, there are most likely forgeries or fabrications. Uh, on the other side, you have, uh, you know, did Roswell uh, occur in such a way that you had an extraterrestrial craft uh, recovered with bodies? Now, either that happened or it didn't. Uh, if it didn't happen, then there probably has not been, or something like it, if there haven't been any recoveries of UFOs, there probably hasn't been an MJ-12. If, if there have been recoveries of UFOs, then there, it wouldn't seem unlikely at all that something like MJ-12 would have been formed. Now, mm -hmm. it's possible that a secret committee was formed and it wasn't called MJ-12. It's also possible that there could have been an MJ-12 and it didn't have anything to do with flying saucer recoveries. So these are all unanswered questions that researchers like I have. Right. Well, I know Linda Howe, who's on television quite a lot related to these topics, has done her due diligence and research and, and continues that process to this day, uh, interviewing people in more classified positions and so forth when, when they, and they come out, you know, even all the way to Antarctica, you know, talking about that lately, that's been a hot topic. Of course, we're talking 1947, now we're 2022 that's a long time to keep a secret now let me ask you this is more of a conceptual question in your opinion why would it be that it would be so necessary to keep that secret and away from the american public or the world public for that matter uh, i know what my thoughts are my research but what's your take on that why would they would, would do that there are several reasons Terry, um, first, first, there, there's a, in my mind, there's a huge difference between thinking about extraterrestrial visitation in the abstract, between thinking of it that way, and actually really truly knowing that it's, that it's real, and that it right. can't be denied. And I think that if it was presented to the public in such a way that people could not deny it, that they had to accept it, I think that the people in the know felt that that was simply too big of a risk, you know, that, that it could be too disruptive to society. Now, if it is true, and if the proof really is there, it, it has never been officially confirmed. So we don't really know what the reaction of the public would be because we haven't been through that. But I think that, that uh, that's one of the considerations that they may have had, you know, if, if they were dealing with this reality. The other side of it is in, in 1947 and in the early 50s, the authorities were scared to death that Stalin was going to overrun Western Europe. And they were very, very busy uh, creating this defense structure that we now know as NATO that still exists today. And they were, during that period of time, they were going through the Berlin blockade and the Berlin airlift and the the national security state, uh, which was being formed after the uh, passage of the National Security Act in 1947, the national security state was hastily being constructed and the CIA had been created. And there was all of this concern, even paranoia about the intentions and capabilities of the Soviets. So I think they saw their mission uh, in life in, for the public to defend the United States against the Soviet threat. And that was the first priority. And I think that the, if it did happen, then the UFO problem was shunted aside and it was kept in extreme secrecy.
Yeah, I mean, the geopolitical religious connotation of disrupting society as we know it, because thinking back to 1947, even to the 50s, the way life was, you know, happy days kind of stuff, um, very religious type scenario going on. And most people attended church and so forth, had certain belief systems. And uh, I think introduction of UFO concepts uh, would have caused what they were worried about, I think a bit of a chaos situation where the government wouldn't be able to control people's panic, in fact. Uh, today, though, with all the stuff that is out there on the internet, with all the stuff on History Channel and Discovery Channel, whatever, <clears throat> I think people are, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think people will be a much, much less chaos. It'd be almost in a lot of cases, oh, oh hum, we knew that, you know, and that's where the concept of slowly leaking things out through the media, through through movies and televisions and and so forth, and even to the point where uh, supposedly the movie um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, producers were given data and they basically recreated that on the screen. Um, and some people think it's a large scale, almost conspiracy, if you would, but I, not quite a conspiracy theorist. So um, a way to inoculize the stress uh, for the entire general public that they're kind of conceptually used to that. I don't know. That's what's, that's a little bit of a thought that I've seen out there and that makes some sense. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's a lot different now because we've gone through 70 years of <laughs> thinking about UFOs, taking UFO reports, uh, a lot of programs about extraterrestrials, you know, the X-Files, close encounters of the third kind, et cetera, et cetera. So there has been a lot of conditioning of the public to uh, at least be familiarized uh, with, with the idea now. But I think realistically, we have to take into consideration that rightly or wrongly, there, there, there's a lot of mistrust of the government now. And even if they did come out and flat inform the public that this is true, I'm not sure that everyone would believe them. And uh, you have to consider that, and I don't want to get into politics, but you just take uh, like vaccines for uh, COVID. Uh, a lot of people won't accept it. You know, they don't trust it, you know, rightly or wrongly. I'm not taking a side one way or the, uh, one way or the other, but what I'm talking about are public perceptions and public attitudes. I think, and if, yes, I agree with you 100% there because, you know, COVID is a great example you use there because it's not the medicine they're worried about it's the trust of the government which over the decades especially after watergate and on down the line you know the trust is just nosedived to where people don't believe what's coming out it like they used to <clears throat> so to your point yes i believe there would be a significant amount of public population that would say hey mm, nah, i don't believe it until they actually see an alien walk up on their uh, doorstep and knock on the door. I don't think some people would ever believe it. So Tommy, you got anything on that? You know, I was just thinking about this whole thing of the secrecy and such, but Terry, I mean, we've been in law enforcement for over 30 years. Yeah. How many times have we been asked things that we weren't allowed to share? Not oh to my God. Secret per se, but you know, just to minimize the impact of the uncomfortableness to the general public. Yeah, absolutely. You sign agreements. I mean, my agreements are still in place. There's things I can't talk about and, and won't. And, you know, the thing is, <laughs> yeah, you do get to know all the dirty little secrets, what's under the carpet, so to speak. Uh, and you can't talk about it because uh, you would jeopardize your liberty and potentially your pension and, and your family and so forth. So I totally get, totally understand that concept. So how long can you keep a if you want to call it a cover-up or just a cloak of secrecy on something depends on agreements that are signed and the integrity of the people who signed them and whether they continue to hold out um, until their deathbed, perhaps. And we've had a number of deathbed confessions, if you will, uh, of these folks in the UFO community. And a lot of them that were the originators are either dead or getting really long in the tooth. Would that, would that be correct, Tom? Yeah, but we haven't con considering the possibility that this is real mm -hmm. and considering the extent of people that have been involved in this in one way or another, 
I don't think we've had nearly enough deathbed, deathbed confessions. Okay. Right. And if this is real and if the secrecy is being enforced, I mean, it could be, it could be enforced with real live threats. In other words, people are scared to death to tell the truth about their involvement in it. You know, if that, if that's the case. So um, it's interesting to look at the problem uh, in terms of, of religions and I'm not, uh, I don't mean to judge or criticize any particular religion, but for example, uh, the the evangelical Christians, they have very firm beliefs and attitudes about how the world is going to turn out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that they that they would be able to accept uh, this kind th- this kind of reality if it was presented to them. Now I'm talking hypothetically. Uh, let's look at the Muslims. I really don't know know how they would react. Uh, I know that uh, many of the Muslims in the Middle East have been conditioned to mistrust the U.S. because of Soviet Soviet and Russian disinformation, rumors that have been planted, lies that have been told uh, about the U.S. So I'm not sure that the Muslims would, how they would react to such news. In the in the Judaism community, you know, you have you have Reformed Jews that are that are pretty modernistic in their attitudes, but you also have very conservative, even uh, really really strictly uh, conservative uh, Jews, and they go they go by the Bible very very closely. So I don't you know I don't know if they could accept this. So it's really in terms of public acceptance uh, acceptance and perception. It's really a pretty complex situation worldwide. And I, I believe there's think tanks that spend a lot of time debating this issue uh, that we're talking about in that respect and probably advised this group if it exists, um, which it appears it does. Um, most of them are dead now. I think all of them are dead now. 12 originals are dead. But I guess the, the question I would have, is there an extension, a replacement if you will, of these 12, as they leave government and or retire and or die, do you believe, and it doesn't have to be definitive, but do you believe that there's a replacement of that or it's morphed into some other uh, form of uh, government oversight? Yeah, I mean, if, if it existed originally as, as MJ-12 uh, and you had 12 people on there, uh, you know, people die and they're probably replaced. Now, an interesting little factoid about all this and the MJ-12 affair and the history of it is that the, the documents were received about two months after the last person on the MJ-12 list died. Okay. And that's, that, that to me is very interesting. Okay. And the MJ-12 group, uh, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm probably getting tedious saying this, but if it existed, it's the name has probably changed several times over the years. And uh, from uh, some of the information that I've reviewed, uh, I could probably come up with 10, 12 different names that it may have had, you know, since since the ni- 1940s. Well, you know, in uh, the judicial system, we have a level of proof in the civil court a presumption of the evidence. In other words, 51% in your mind are better, and that's a presumption of the evidence. And then in a criminal court, it's beyond a reasonable doubt, so above 90%. So based on the documents that you have researched, seen, got copies of, as the case may be, uh, what do you think we're at? Where do you think we're at on the truth factor here? I think that uh, there's a distinct possibility uh, that, that it's true. But it all depends on whether one or more craft have been recovered or whether some kind of direct communication is, has occurred between the authorities and between these, this group or groups uh, that, that apparently are visiting us. I, I think if there hasn't ever been a saucer recovery, if there hasn't been any direct communication and collaboration, then, then probably MJ-12 has, is, is false. Okay, uh, but if there has been that, then something like that has occurred. Now, it's not necessarily 
uh, mandatory that you form a strict committee to address this. I know in seeing how the government works to a certain extent, and I'm not from government or military, but they form committees, they form ad hoc committees, they study this, they study that, they discuss this, they debate that, and the committees change, they morph. You have people from different departments and different divisions coming into committees and leaving and you know, priorities change over time. So it, it's, it's possible that, uh, this, that the reality ha has been addressed, but, but not necessarily as an MJ-12 committee per se. Right. Well, let me ask you this. This is a more specific question, I guess. The, uh, my understanding of what's been reported is that President Eisenhower had a meeting with an extraterrestrial in the White House. Now, one of his was a granddaughter or great-granddaughter, I don't remember which, uh, came out publicly and said that's true. Um, the family knows that, and there was a uh, an alien, if you want to call him that, uh, that did have that meeting, and there was some agreement, uh, I guess, put in place at that time. Uh, what's your thoughts on that, or have you seen any documentation related to that? Well, there, there have been rumors and stories that... Uh, um... There are at least two. There's there has been a rumor and a story that uh, Eisenhower, when he was in California, uh, he disappeared for a day or two and mm -hmm. met you know met the uh, spaceman. Um, now the official explanation was that he had a cracked tooth and had to go to the dentist, and I believe that the dentist has testified that 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 was the case. The other story rumor that has been around for years is that the aliens landed at, at, um, at Holloman Air Force Base in the night, uh, I think in the 1960s, and that Air Force officers and or Eisenhower met with them, uh, perhaps briefly, kind of like on the runway kind of a thing. Uh, and this is, these are associated that with these rumors that there are treaties with the aliens and all of this kind of thing. And the problem is the, they're fascinating stories. They're fascinating rumors, but we don't have any official confirmation of it. There, there are no official documents that have been released, you know, through the Freedom of Information Act uh, confirming MJ-12 or these alien uh, relationships or any of that. So it, it's all on the rumor and the, you know, kind of like the campfire story level. And they're, they're intriguing. I love them as much as everybody else does, but we don't, I'm not willing, I'm, I'm trying to be an objective researcher, an objective person in the subject. And until we have some, something amounting to firm confirmation, you know, I just can't, can't go any further than that. Sure. Tommy, you have something? You know, it's an interesting concept. I take it from a very humanistic perspective rather than the science perspective with this one. Ever since I was young, I always felt there was other life out there because I don't have the egotistical place that says I'm the only thing in the game. When you look at the size of the universe or universes, however you want to label that, does it even conceptually make any sense that this is only one planet that can sustain a life of some flavor? Yeah, I mean, you just look, I mean, common sense, look at the universe. We're, our solar system is just an, you know, our star is just an average sized star. And we have eight, nine planets revolving around it. One of which is teeming with life, our, our earth. Then you look at out and they, they've said there are either more stars or more galaxies than there are grains of sand on the beaches, you know? So, you know, common sense would tell you that that the universe is most likely teeming with life. But our problem is because of our level of scientific knowledge at this time, we don't understand how, how they could get here. But if they're getting here, they're getting here. And, you know, let's face the facts, okay? <laughs> and what we consider life, we're kind of a water-based planet, obviously. And uh, what we consider life may not be at all what life is someplace else. You know, the Edgar Casey, uh, you know, ARE, that kind of stuff. You look at some of the research there and, you know, other places beyond that. But 
talk about experiences or as they call it sojourns um, into Neptune or you're in a vibratory life. So you're not in a physical 3D life. You may be in a different dimensional life, but you're still the soul uh, is experiencing that particular environment for a time. And so I think our concept of life is very limited based on our experience here, uh, whether it's a giant hologram, which some of the physicists believe, um, or if it's just a total reality, which, you know, that's a whole nother, whole nother topic for someday. But uh, honestly, I agree with uh, what Tommy said that, you know, I think it would be most arrogant to believe that we are the only thing out there. And from the massive amount of reports, and even Project Blue Book, you know, they couldn't wipe all those out. There's hundreds of them that they still couldn't actually say, write it off to some weather balloon or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I think there's uh, volumes of data there. And from an investigator point of view, if I was literally going to take the time to go through every single thing from 1947 to current, and even could go to Russia before 47 or whatever, um, and even even beyond 47, go way back into ancient times where it's even in, in uh, you know, paintings and so forth, where they show obviously what would we would consider an alien craft. Uh, there seems to be at a minimum, the preponderance of evidence in my mind as an investigator, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, in some cases, probably, it's probably right there. Could I prove it to a jury is how I always kind of get to that point. I think with enough physical artifacts, uh, witness statements, that's what we look for in a criminal justice setting. Uh, can you get that? And are they believable? You know, if I could introduce polygraphs, you know, we can't now, but if we could, could we probably convince a jury that certain things occur? I think we're probably at that point now where we could probably do it if a proper full-blown investigation was put together uh, by properly qualified investigators. I think that's possible. And uh, that's a concept. And that's where I want to get kind of jump into your move on. Uh, experiences you're on the board for MUFON or were and then you know still doing I am still still on the board um yeah. so um let's talk about MUFON for a minute tell people what that means and you know what your role is there and if somebody has got something to report how would they do it and maybe they want to be an investigator what does that take what's the screening process MUFON began in the late 60s and early 70s when the Air Force was getting out of the public UFO business. And the Air Force had, uh, uh, they had hired uh, the University of Colorado through Edward Condon uh, to uh, do a study and, and file a report. And then uh, the Air Force shut down Project Blue Book and uh, moved the files you know, to, to archive. They eventually became public. At that time, a person by the name of Walt Andrus, who at the time was with uh, APRO, uh, uh, an investigators group called Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, he teamed up with John Schuessler and a couple of other people, and they started what began as the Midwest U UFO Network, and it was later called the UF Mutual UFO Network. And they started developing a network of, of what we call field investigators. And they had, uh, they had field investigators in, in most every state, and they had state directors, and uh, they, public, they started publishing uh, a newsletter called Skylook, which later became the MUFON UFO Journal. And then they were putting on uh, annual symposiums. So that, that basic model is still in, in effect today. MUFON uh, manages a network of field investigators and state directors. Uh, it publishes a monthly uh, MUFON UFO journal, and we put on an annual symposium. And at, at the symposium, other researchers and presenters are invited to come and present what they know, and that's, that's entered into a permanent record in the uh, symposium, symposium proceedings. So that, that's basically what MUFON is about. And uh, we do, uh, MUFON does charge for membership. 
uh, to get uh, uh, an annual or a monthly MUFON journal. Uh, there is some cost to that. It's about almost $6 a month. And you can get as, inv as involved as you want to be. If you want to become a field investigator, you can uh, take the online course or purchase the MUFON field investigators manual. And we have an exam and the person can pass the exam and then uh, receive their field investigators card and then go to work in their state, in their local area. We have state section directors that, that correspond to a city. And then we have state directors that correspond to a state. So a new person uh, getting into UFO investigations would uh, team up with another investigator or, or a, a state section director or a state director and then go out and start following up on, on cases. Now for the general public, uh, MUFON has a webpage, MUFON.com. And if you want to report a UFO, you can go on there and report a UFO and you can be referred you know, to your, uh, re uh, uh, your relevant geographic area. And then in, in theory, in principle, and for the most part, uh, that, that case will be followed up and investigated. Now, MUFON uh, has been around for 50 years, so we have a lot of cases on file. <laughs> we have That's over 100,000 cases in our archives. So, you know, we're, we're sitting on a, a, a very, uh, very large wealth of information. Uh, that's not to say that every case in there is a UFO. Uh, but uh, there, that's a high enough volume of information that, you know, it, it does need to be analyzed and, and the, the wheat needs to be sorted from the chaff, so to speak. You know, I was just... That, that is MUFON's position in the world. I was just down at uh, Rice University and they had a conference because a lot of the UFO researchers that have had their stuff for 30, 40 years... Um, they're getting, like I said, a little long in the tooth, and they know they're not going to be around forever. And uh, Rice University uh, Religious Studies Department, particularly, um, agreed to archive properly all of these documents. So once one person did it, some of these leading experts, others then subsequently uh, have done it as well. And so the uh, conference was basically from presenters who delivered over to uh, Rice University their documents. You know, one, one I remember they said we had 76 boxes of documentation on their research because you can imagine if you put 40 years into researching and, you know, you're in your 80s and you're not going to be around here much longer, you don't want it just to go into a barn and your great nephew burns it up or something because he needs fire. But, you know, um, you want it to go someplace that can be useful. And so the archivists, and it's called Archives of the Impossible was the name of the conference. And so the archivists there at Rice um, have agreed to do that process. And, you know, that's already started. And so they're doing a fantastic job with it. But that's going to be available as I understand it for the public, it's going to take some time to get that all done. It's not going to be something that's just in a flash because, you know, trying to electronically scan everything and, you know, get it properly microfilmed or whatever you're going to do and get it organized where it's searchable. Uh, it's going to be really challenging. Uh, no question about it. But uh, I think that's going to be a great repository. There's other places, other universities that showed up there as representatives. I think, um, to Southwest Georgia University, somewhere in Georgia, they also had a similar type archive. And, and there were several others that had shown up. Uh, somebody from Syracuse showed up too. But anyway, the point is they were really taking on a, a, a large burden. Uh, and, and I don't know if it's a burden or a benefit, but probably a benefit to mankind uh, to, to take that on and house it because it takes, it's gonna take a lot of space and space at a university, as you know, is a, at a premium. So, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, I missed that conference. I wish I'd known about it. I certainly would have attended. Uh, you know, I'm only three three hours away from Houston. Uh, I did. I was. I did attend a presentation by Jeffrey Crypal uh, that he gave at at Trinity University. It was it was a remote presentation, but I am aware of him, and I've been meaning to make contact with him. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm I'm very very interested in the whole archive issue. Uh, yes. There, you know, it's, it's good. I, I'm a little concerned that 
they're doing it under a religious studies department, but uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that they're really professionally, seriously putting together this archive. And, and like you mentioned, there are some others around. Uh, there are some other <clears throat> researchers that are still alive that have a huge amount of information. They've, I'm thinking of Linda Howe, for example. Um, she's been doing this for 40, 50 years, and, and she must have just a huge amount of information. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned that that uh, will be properly preserved. Uh, and there, there are others. So, yeah, I hear you. Tom, in all your research, you had over 100,000, you know, cases and such, where a lot of that information has been tried to be gleaned from government agencies. Have you ever had a government agency come to your folks and say, let's see what you have? That, <clears throat> the closest that that occurred was with this whole sequence of uh, this, uh, what became the OSAP program. Uh, I don't ask me to repeat the acronym. I, I have trouble remembering all that on the spot, but what happened was uh, Senator Reed and a couple of other senators decided that they wanted to fund a, a research study and Senator Reed knew Robert Bigelow. They're both from Nevada. And Robert Bigelow is, is a wealthy businessman who had uh, lots of capability. He was, and, a, he was a Skinwalker Ranch owner for an extended period of time for people yeah. who might watch that on television. Yeah. So uh, Reed and them funded this program, which became known as OSAB. And even though they did put it out for bid, uh, Bigelow's group, uh, Bigelow Aerospace, uh, was the only one that bid on the contract. So they, they got the contract and they, uh, they, they were off to the races. One of the elements of that program was Bigelow came to MUFON and, and uh, uh, set up an agreement where MUFON would cooperate with, with Mr. Bigelow and uh, Bigelow had access to MUFON cases as they were coming in. Now, the idea was that, and the reason why MUFON cooperated, and I know this because I was on the board at the time, the reason why MUFON got into this was that it, it really gave us our first opportunity to have a rapid deployment force. In other words, uh, a no holds barred in terms of expenses ability to uh, immediately go to uh, to a hot case and that this did happen in, in several several instances so uh, there was that <clears throat> that interaction between uh, Bigelow and MUFON now at the time at the time that this occurred as far as I know, the MUFON board members were not told the source of the money that was being used in this program, okay? And it was, it was quite a bit of money, okay? And <clears throat> what happened was, uh, you know, this program was carried out and it ended, uh, for MUFON and Bigelow, it ended within one year. Okay, so, okay, fine. This is, you know, around what, 2010, somewhere around there. Here it is in 2017, an article comes out in the New York Times that started this whole, this whole uh, uh, recent sequence of events. And when I read that article, then I put two and two together and I realized that it was government money that was funding this. Okay. So that's, to answer your question, that's, as far as I know, MUFON's involvement with any government program or government request for information, but I don't think that it that it occurred under straightforward circumstances in terms of funding or or the origin of the of the program. Interesting. Seems like it'd be a good resource for them to follow up on if they want to find out what's going on. You'd think so, yes. But it's MUFON, it's, it's not like we're transparent, but it's not like either that we wouldn't share information if we were properly approached and, and you know, there was, it, it was above board, okay? 
Um, and we get accused of, you know, being government agents and working in secret with the government and all that. And I've been on, I've been on the board for 25, 30 years and I have no evidence of that. Yeah, you know, one people what people don't realize is the government does contract out with private entities for these kinds of investigations because it's not subject to FOIA. And that's an easy way to keep it secret and trusted corporations that have a shared interest. There's may be more research and financial, uh, but the government's looking for data and does not necessarily want to share it. So that's one of the ways you do that. Uh, is just fund somebody and Bigelow doesn't have to show anybody anything. That's right. And, and he doesn't, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> here's the deal. There, there are UFO researchers like John Greenwald. John Greenwald's an expert at filing FOIA requests and he's been doing it since he was 15 years old and he's filed, I think he's collected over a million documents and just recently, uh, he's gotten some more information, uh, you know, about this report that came out last June. And another gentleman who does the UFO trail, like uh, uh, J- uh, Jack Brewer, I think is his name, he, he got some more information out of the government from, from the OSAP program. So, you know, th- there are researchers and investigators that keep, that keep chipping away you know, through FOIA at the government. Now, <clears throat> if something's still classified, the government's gonna, not going to release it. And it's really up to them. They may decide, okay, we can declassify this and we can release it. So, but you have to go to the government and ask and, and even demand that they release this information. And they, they either don't release any or they release some, you know, and the rest of it's redacted. And that's how it all works. Of course. That's the nature of the game. And uh, we're quite familiar with that. And (laughs) my question is this, um, we talk about these encounters with UFOs. Obviously, I'm going to ask you in your experience what the best UFO case was. I won't ask you that to start with right now, but keep it in the back of your mind. Uh, The best, most convincing one you've ever heard or participated in. But in the meantime, we call these encounters uh, per the movie, you know, close encounter, third kind, but there's first kind, second kind, third kind, fourth kind. Can you kind of enlighten us on the classification of what we would consider interactions so that public wouldn't know anybody listening to this. Well, the close encounter uh, criteria were, they were developed by uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And he's a very famous person in UFO history. And he was, he was a consultant to the air force, but it's, it's basically a, 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 a stepped up level of how close you are to the UFO. And uh, the the, the the first kind and the second kind are, are less than the third kind. And the third kind is like you're within 500 feet of a UFO. 500 feet is pretty darn close, okay? And that is a close, close encounter. Then you get into uh, uh, maybe seeing uh, uh, occupants of the craft come out. Maybe you undergo an abduction experience and all of this. So you're, get, you're, you're going beyond the close encounter of the third kind scenario. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Hynek, at, at a certain point in his career as an Air Force consultant, it dawned on him that even though the ma- vast majority of cases could be explained in relatively ordinary terms, that there are cases of high strangeness, okay? And, you know, if a UFO lands in your backyard and the space spacemen come out, that is a very strange occurrence, okay? And so he developed this, this uh, protocol of close encounters, first, first kind, second kind, third kind. And now we've gone beyond that, you know, into abductions and, and, and uh, those scenarios. Tommy, you got something? I'm just curious, where do you, in your work, and I know I'm kind of diverting a little bit from the track run, but I've always had an interest in the space program. And there's been a lot of anecdotal stories of transmissions made by our astronauts, you know, um, describing things that they noted that were not of this world, so to speak. 
have you encountered any of that in your research that can verify or disprove any of that stuff? I mean, all the way up through the Apollo mission, when they're on the moon, they were talking about having seen some things and that was blacked out supposedly and those type of incidents. Well, the, it, again, it, it falls into the rumor uh, and stories category. And, and for years that have, there have been rumors that the, the astronauts saw alien craft on the moon and they've seen UFOs and in their, in their space uh, activities, you know, orbiting the earth or maybe between the earth and the moon. Now, NASA, you know, they have, they have a public radio channel and then they have a private radio channel. And there are some things that the astronauts probably have to talk about. You don't want to hear that they're having a problem going to the bathroom or, or they just threw, they just spit up their dinner or, you know, all that kind of thing. But the, uh, if there is any UFO activity that they're reporting on or discussing, it's going to go through the private channel. Okay, it's not going to go through the public channel. So the question is, I, and I don't, I don't know if these recordings, if they were recorded, or if these recordings even still exist. But I would think, in terms of documentary evidence, that that would be one place to look. Okay, the the recordings of the of of, of the private channel conversations that the astronauts have with, uh, you know, with with Houston, uh, with headquarters. Um, now there have been rumors and, and I, I say they're rumors because we've never received any official confirmation, but that they, they airbrush UFOs out of, you know, photographs on the moon, uh, and this kind of thing. And, uh, maybe, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. There was a fascinating story told by a gentleman, on another uh, UFO podcast, and he uh, he and, a, and an associate of him his they went to Houston, and they asked to see the lunar photographs of of formations on the moon, artificial formations on the moon. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth, and they went uh, they went through a big runaround, but they were finally given permission to visit this location, it was like on a back road somewhere, there, there was a building there and they go in and uh, you know, they're given access to these photographs and they find these structures on the moon. Okay, now that's, that's a story that's being told. I, I think he wrote a book and they may even have some photographs and I don't, I don't have the name of the book with me, but that's, that's one of the closest uh, things I've ever heard actual, maybe, maybe having some confirmation that, that there's something to that. Amazing stuff. It is. And, you know, one of the things they talked about that some of the test crashes that they did on the moon and then seeing this bell ringing event on their uh, various equipment instrumentation showing that instead of a dull thud and so forth, they had to get this bell ringing effect from crashing on the moon, which leads people to believe that the moon has is an artificial thing uh and it's the coating of you know debris, you know soils of some sort on there but underneath it it should not be ringing hollow like a metal bell or so forth i don't know if you've heard any of that and, and um when i get asked some of those questions of course clearly we don't have enough data to answer it but um there's been anecdotal information about that yeah, I've heard of that, but whether the moon is hollow or artificial, that, that's above my pay grade. Right, right. Gotcha. So let's go to your, um, you know, we're kind of getting close to wrapping up here. So let's go to your, what's your best UFO story for folks? Or your, uh, I, you, <laughs> you got lots of them, I know, but, you know, I'm thinking the best one that people would get a kick out of. The UFO story that I advocate is what's called the, the Cash Landrum case. And that was where Craft uh, was spotted by a couple of ladies and a young uh, boy child, a young male child. They were driving in a car in East Texas and this, this uh, craft comes pretty close. It, it appears, uh, I don't know if it's flaming or it's glowing, but they felt heat 
uh, and they they uh, they received uh, what amounted to uh, radiation like burns as a result of the uh, of the encounter. Now there were also a number of helicopters reported in in the area. Now uh, a MUFON board member, a longtime UFO researcher, uh, John Schusser, uh lived in the Houston area. He was he was an engineer and uh, he was with McDonnell Douglas and they had all kinds of contracts with NASA. So he was living in Clear Lake, which is a suburb of Houston. And he investigated this to the nth degree. He really, really dug into it, uh, really did a deep dive and eventually just hit a brick wall. Okay, so uh, another person that I mentioned, Richard Doty, who uh, is formerly with AFOSI, and he now is out on a lot of internet programs uh, talking about his background and experience. And he claims that the Cash Landrum craft was actually an alien craft uh, developed uh, in the Area 51 part of the world in Nevada, and that they, they couldn't figure out how the alien propulsion system works. So they constructed some kind of nuclear type propulsion system for the craft. And that he, he claims that they flew it for months uh, in this remote location and everything seemed to be fine. And his claim is that the craft was being transferred to another location, uh, perhaps an Air Force base in, in Texas, and that it got into trouble. It was in distress. So here we have, uh, we have people being subjected to radiation type burns uh, very, very close to a craft. A number of helicopters reported and a former US government employee claiming that it's, it's a combination of alien and US, US uh, manufacturer. That's, that's what turns me on. <laughs> you know? And that to me, I mean, that's, a, as far as I'm concerned, that's a real case. And I've got, I've got all the documentation uh, from, from uh, 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 Mr. Schusler's investigation. Uh, there, there, there are two rumors about the settlement, the uh, cash, cashes and landrums, they sued the government because they felt they had been injured by it. I've heard one story that the government just denied their claim outright and, and stonewalled them. And then I've, I've also heard a rumor that there was a, there was a backdoor settlement. You know, they were given some money, perhaps if they, if they keep quiet about it. That's my favorite case. <laughs> It'd be a good one. I have heard of that one. Yes. In fact, I've heard of that one. So Tom, you got a question? No, I, I think this is fascinating stuff. And I think we just scratched on the surface of where we're going to end up before um, we find out the truth. You know, I wonder, as we're having this discussion, we talk about the government involvement over history, the recent creation of the Space Force. You know, we talk about that as to protect our satellites from adversaries here on Earth. But you wonder if there's another uh, impetus to that creation. Well, it's like, like anything else. There's there's the public side of it that we hear about. And then there's the non-public side that we don't hear about. And you don't know what, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, we just don't know what what they could be doing behind the scenes because we're never told. The uh, concept of a secret space program is out there. You'll see that purported on Gaia TV and things of that nature. Um, and, you know, there's a few people that tend to push that as a reality that there is, we've been interacting at a very high technological level for a number of decades um, and using humans in that respect and particularly some with psychic abilities to, in order to communicate with aliens and whatnot. But it seems to me if they're sophisticated enough to come here, they're probably sophisticated enough to have a translator themselves. Um, it's a mechanical form at the very least. But uh, as MUFON looked at any you know, investigation related to the truth behind a secret space program. Well, we actually had some of the people advocating that uh, present at one of our symposiums a couple of years ago, and, and, and we've gotten hell for it. 
because the people that are advocating that, they have no evidence to uh, back up their stories, no documents, uh, no other corroboration. The stories are just wild beyond belief, you know, that, that they're trained in, in uh, uh, you know, operating on Mars and that they're regret, you know, they're, the time is manipulated, so they come back to the present time or the past time and all this. And I mean, it's anything's possible in this in this field, okay? Because we're we are we're we're addressing things that we don't understand. So I can't say 100%. None of it's true. It didn't happen or it couldn't happen. It may have, but our problem is, I I'm kind of an historian and a researcher and investigator, and you guys are, you're formerly with police and all that, you have to have evidence, okay? You have to have support, something to support your claims. If, you know, in police work, if a woman comes in and claims that she was raped by Mr. X, you're not gonna convict the guy without evidence. And I can't go out and say that we have a secret space program when I don't have any real evidence for it. Now, they're there has been a, a conventional secret space program in that the government has been launching uh, classified satellites for years. They, they'll even come out and say that it's, it's a classified uh, satellite payload. And there's, there are things like that that go on that are secret and classified. You know, that's, that's a real secret space program. Now, I, I came across an article a few days ago uh, I found extremely intriguing, but that the U.S. is setting up a surveillance, uh, uh, a surveillance capability for between here and the moon. Okay, now it's one thing to be, you know, you have satellites orbiting Russian satellites and Chinese satellites and all this, but some of these other countries are trying to go to the moon now, and and the ostensible reason is that they're, you know, they're surveilling any traffic between the Earth and the moon. <laughs> because of that, but that to me is is suspicious. Okay, it's got to got to pass the smell test, as we call it. And <laughs> but if something walks like a duck, talks like a duck, you know, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So we have to, you know, kind of take those things into consideration when we're doing investigations as well. But data evidence critical uh, to making any of this, and that's not hard to hide or, or just withhold if you're in charge of it you know let anybody know and get stuff outside of FOIA and it's much easier uh, to conceal uh, and sometimes you know it's challenging sometimes we're our own worst enemy the more we know the less safe we are as a as a people uh, you know because everybody wants to talk about the secrets and Sometimes I could say from the other side, you know, government side, some things is not best out in the public because it would disrupt issues. I get that. I get the concept. Um, but that requires a whole lot of trust for those people who are holding those secrets. And there are really good people in the government, especially, you know, in, in some of the three-lettered agencies and military, some exceptionally good patriots. But... <clears throat> There are those well, that are always in every form of problem. Well, with this national security state in place that we have now, one scholar pointed out that a, a, very, a relatively high percentage of our history is classified. Uh, I don't know what the what his uh, estimation was, but a pretty large fraction of our documentation of our history is classified. We don't even know what our history is, really, as United States citizen. And that to me is very worrisome. It is. It is. Hey, Tom, if people want to get a hold of you, what is your contact information? Or you said you have a blog. Uh, what is that? So we can get that up on the screen. Yeah. Uh, it's Tom Whitmore blog. That's all one word. Tom Whitmore blog dot wordpress dot com. That's Tom Whitmore and blog. And what would they find if they go on to com. Uh, my, uh, I'm on Facebook as Tom Whitmore and I'm on Twitter as at Tom Tulsa. That's at Tom Tulsa. 
Gotcha. Fantastic. And what would they hope to find? I know you've done a number of research papers. Is that on your blog as well? Or is yes. there another source for that? Yes, I have four uh, papers on my blog. Uh, the first one is MJ-12, the counterintelligence angle. Uh, the second one is before MJ-12. Uh, the third one is MJ-12, psychological warfare and strategic deception. And the fourth one is MJ-12, AFOSI. And my the and the one that I'm currently working on that I hope to post uh, probably next month is uh, MJ-12 uh, put into the historical context of, of, uh, of forgeries and fabrications. And I've gone even back to ancient times and, and up to the present of all of the forgeries and fabrications, not all of them, but many of the forgeries and fabrications that have occurred. Now for, um, as we're closing in here, but as I say a newbie wants to get in this, what two books would you recommend they read to kind of really get them up to speed on the UFO concepts and so forth? Is there something you would recommend? Stanton Friedman uh, wrote a book and uh, it's called Magic. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a book that you can get on Amazon uh, that's spelled M-A-J-I-C. Right. And he uh, is very, was very pro MJ-12. Unfortunately, we've lost him. He's, he's deceased now. And I've sat, you know, eyeball to eyeball with him and discussed some of these things. He's very pro MJ-12, but he, at the same time, he describes some very de detailed research that he did uh, on MJ-12. I, 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 he's a very, very intelligent man, very, very, uh, very sharp. Uh, another thing a person can do, you can actually look at the documents. Another pro MJ-12 uh, place is uh, MJ-12, uh, I'm sorry, MajesticDocuments.com. And that's a website, MajesticDocuments.com, that has been created by Ryan Wood, who is the son of Robert Wood, who actually is a dear friend of mine. But they, uh, they came into possession of of the Timothy Cooper documents. So uh, they, they posted these on their website, majesticdocuments.com. You can get a lot of information there. Fantastic. Tommy, you got anything as we close out? Yeah, Tom, I just want to say thank you for what you're doing and being with us today and sharing this with our audience. I know this has become a, a pretty hot topic in recent years throughout you know, the media and such. And it's really great to have someone that... Uh, has the credibility to speak to it, not just sensationalize it. So really appreciate your efforts. And thank you. Thank you all for having me. It's an honor to be with you today. Well, we really appreciate it. And for all those who have seen a UFO, keep your hopes up, get the documentation. Uh, I'm sure uh, Tom would love to uh, get you in the MUFON files and hopefully we can help uh, prove this one way or another. So uh, from those of us here at the metaphysical mysteries we thank you for joining us today and we will be back with another exciting guest in the near future so stay tuned and thanks a lot make sure to hit that subscribe button help us out on that thank you <laughs>